0: The following message has been brought to you by Trinity Baptist Church. For more information, visit us on the web at trinitybc.org You've got your Bibles with you which I hope you do for a Wednesday night Bible study. If you don't, there's a Bible there in the pew rack in front of you. I would encourage you so you can follow along with me tonight. Open your scriptures up to Micah chapter 3. Micah chapter 3. And if you would, Go ahead and put a marker in Micah chapter 3 and flip over to 2 Timothy or rather 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Micah chapter 3. Now we've been walking through the book of Micah. I know last week we weren't here and uh, Jeff Clifford filled in I uh, heard he did a great job, thankful for him uh, being here to deliver God's Word last week. But the weeks prior, we've been walking through the prophet uh, of Micah, and we have seen it parallels a lot of the content of Isaiah, where Isaiah was calling out the sins of God's people, uh, proclaiming that judgment, judgment was coming upon them because of their wickedness, because of their injustices that they were committing, because of their idolatry and then their immoralities and that God would bring judgment upon them because of it. It would be a great judgment, and Israel would totally be destroyed and led captive back into uh, Babylon even. Um, A severe judgment of God, but intermixed in all of that are promises of redemption, a hope of a future restoration that even the discipline, the judgment God would bring is ultimately for an eternal good to draw His people back to Himself to bring his people to the place of understanding the sinfulness of their sin and ultimately bringing a Deliverer, the Redeemer, the Messiah, the servant, suf- suffering servant of the Lord even, the true and better servant of the Lord. And, and he would be the means by which all of that would be accomplished. And we've turned our attention now after walking through Isaiah to Micah, and we've seen those same themes but they're coming from a different man that God used to proclaim that message at the very same time. Isaiah and Micah lived uh, uh, around the same time period. They likely were prophesying um, nearly around the same time frame, and so the abuses and sins that Isaiah called out are the same abuses and sins that Micah is calling out. However, Micah has his way of wording it, and Micah has the, imagery that is in his mind as he speaks to convict the people of God, hopefully to call them to repentance, that God would relent of the judgment that was coming. But nonetheless, there's a difference in what Micah is delivering than what Isaiah is delivering, just because it'd be like the difference between myself preaching a sermon or Jeff Clifford last week preaching a sermon. God uses and speaks through differing individuals, and he did so in an even more powerful way in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit through the prophets as they wrote down what is written. And so we'll turn our attention to Micah chapter 3 this evening, but before we turn there, I want want to set up that chapter with this thought that we find in the words of Paul from 2 Corinthians chapter 7 regarding godly sorrow, a godly sorrow that leads to true repentance, and a worldly sorrow. A worldly sorrow that may lead to a crying out to God, but is not the cry out to God that God will answer, that God hears, because it's not true repentance. It's sad. There's sorrow, similar sorrow in a way, and yet the reasoning for that sorrow is so drastically different. Paul says to the church of Corinth in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 9, Now I rejoice not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted. There is a genuine sorrow over sin that leads to repentance, confession, and redemption, salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. There's another sort, another type of sorrow that though it's sorrowful, it's not the sorrow that God delights in, that God seeks, that God yearns for the sinner to come to.
1: For observe
0: this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner, what diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what uh, indignation, what fear, what vehement desire and zeal, what vindication in all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. And so the, the sorrow that led to repentance, that led to salvation, brought about a true change in life. And Paul is commending this church for it. They just weren't people who came to a place of sorrow because of the consequence of their sin. They actually came to a place of being sorrow because of their sin itself, as it was an offense against a holy God, and as it was a sin against those even others that they had committed these sins against. There's a big difference between sorrow before God out of the grief over your sin against God and sin against others and then a sorrow that's expressed to God just because you're miserable under the consequences of your sin you're miserable under the suffering of your sin you don't want to change your sin you want to keep doing the sin you just want to sin without the consequences that's that's the worldly sorrow we don't want to really be repentant over the things we're doing We want to keep doing them, and the only thing we're really sorry about is the bad things that are happening to us because of the sins we're committing. Unfortunately, I hope not on Sunday morning and Wednesday nights, but often the people that come by throughout the week, and they're seeking assistance often, they they don't desire to repent over their sins. They're not coming to me with a sorrow that's a godly sorrow that leads to true repentance and true salvation. I try to help them in that. I try to to lead them in that. But often what I find, not all the time, but often the person coming merely wants you to soften the consequence of their sin so that they can keep on doing it all the more. And so it may be paying an electric bill. It may be, you know, giving a food card or filling a gas tank. And we often extend grace and do that. Uh, On a first case scenario, even when I might be reluctant to think, is this really going to make a difference? We'll often, uh, in grace, act first to say, maybe this will be the means by which God awakens them to the sinfulness of their sin. But but nonetheless, so often, that person is miserable, they're suffering, and they're sorry. But they're not sorry about their sin. They're not sorry uh, about the people they've hurt and about how that looks in the eyes of God. They're sorry because they're suffering and they can't keep doing what they've been doing without it even getting worse. See the difference? There's a a godly sorrow that says, my sin's an offense against God, and that's the focus. And then there's a worldly sorrow that's only focused on self. On self, really self-fulfillment, self-expression, self, self, all the the things you can add to self about let me keep doing what I want to do that's wrong in the eyes of God. And I, I I want to call out to him to remove the the, the the suffering that's coming upon me because of the wreck it's making in my life. I'm really not sorry about doing it. I'm really not sorry in a way that would lead me to repent and turn to God and ask of for his forgiveness, ask him to save me from it. As we look and read now Micah chapter 3, what we're going to find is Micah tells them when the judgment of God comes that they will cry out. That there will be a turning to God in that moment, but God will not hear. I want you to ask as you read even the description that Micah gives, is, there, or, or is he describing here a godly sorrow being expressed by the people of Israel, or is this merely a worldly sorrow? Micah chapter 3 and verse 1. Micah said, Hear now, O heads of Jacob, and you rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? You who hate good and love evil, who strip the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones, who also eat the flesh of my people, flay their skin from them, break their bones, and chop them in pieces like meat for the pot. Like flesh in the cauldron. We'll, we'll talk about that. I said that's a poetic description there. It's not literal that they were chopping them up like meat. But he's poetically speaking, uh, allegorically speaking even, saying what they're doing to the weak and to the poor would be like uh, even a butcher shop cutting them up. Then they will cry to the Lord, verse 4, but He will not hear them. He will even hide his face from them at that time, because they have been evil in their deeds. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who make my people stray, who chant peace while they chew with their teeth, but who prepare war against him, who puts nothing into their mouths. Therefore you shall have night without vision, and you shall have darkness without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets, and the day shall be dark for them. So the seers shall be ashamed, and the diviners abashed. Indeed, they shall all cover their lips, for there is no answer from God. But truly, I am full of power by the Spirit of the Lord, and of justice and might, to declare to Jacob his transgressions, and to Israel his sins. Now hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and you rulers of the house of Israel, who abhor justice and pervert all equity, who build up Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with iniquity, her heads judge for a bribe, her priests teach for pay, and her prophets divine for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord among us? No harm can come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed like a field. Jerusalem shall become heaps of ruins, and the mountain of the temple like the bare hills of the forest. I want to just give you four applicational thoughts. They're really not more of a sermon-type main point with subpoints. This is really just four applicational thoughts from uh, this chapter this evening. Notice, firstly, of all people... God's people ought to be the ones who know and follow what is right. All the people on planet Earth, if anybody ought to get it right, shouldn't it be God's people? If anybody's really going to live in such a way in this life that 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 shows others love and goodness and righteousness and Justice in the way that we live and in the way that we relate to one another, shouldn't it be those who know the God of love, the God of goodness, the God of righteousness, the God of perfect justice? You look to verse 1 and and Micah calling all of Israel to attention, especially the leaders and the rulers of Israel. Hear now, O heads of Jacob, the ones who were the power, the, the ones in control, and you rulers of the house of Israel. And he begins by asking this rhetorical question Is it not for you to know justice? Even above the people of God, the rulers over the people of God, all through the Old Testament, are commanded to be the ones who rule and reign in justice and in wisdom and in righteousness under the law. Is it not for you to know justice? Israel was the one who had been called as God's special people. God made that covenant with Abraham and with his descendants. He, he established this special relationship with them. Israel was the one to whom the law was given through Moses. They had a written word from God that instructed them on how they were to live and how they were to worship and how they were to relate to God. And it's not that they were ignorant of how to know God or how to live before God. God gave to them the revelation of the law through Moses. They had seen God act time and time again on their behalf for their deliverance. You think of all the great miracles of the Old Testament. And so Israel, generation by generation, even the passing down of those stories, much less the inspired written record of it that they had in the Word of God, uh, they, they knew of the mighty acts of God for their behalf the mighty acts of God to free them from Egypt, to sustain them through the wilderness, to lead them even into the promised land and conquer all those greater people that, that uh, people groups that were in the promised land, the, the Canaanites and the, the Philistines and all the rest, that God brought them to this place, this land of milk and honey. They'd been given the land of promise. And even throughout their history, God raised up prophets like Elijah and Elisha and Isaiah and uh, all the other ones that we have already even read of and the ones that are to come. God raised these men up to deliver his word continually even to the people, that he was a God who was speaking, a God who who instructed his people. Should not Israel have known to do justice, to know what it is, and How they ought to have lived in Jerusalem and in Israel. How they should have ruled and the things that they determined to be right and determined to be wrong. Micah stands before them in all of their wickedness and he begins by asking that rhetorical question, is it not for you to know justice? I think of the words of Jesus in Luke 12, 48, to whom much is given, much will be required regarding that parable of the talents that were given. Um, to those servants even. To whom much is given, much is required. And I draw application even to you and me tonight to think out of all the people on planet earth that that ought to live justly and have a heart for the the poor and and, and living in a way that is truly good and kind and right. All the people of the world, shouldn't it be the church? Shouldn't it be the believers? Shouldn't it be the Christian to whom those whom God has called to be His children, those whom God has saved and redeemed, those whom God has given His Word, not only the prophets and in time past, but the entirety of the New Testament even that we have before us to lead us and guide us and instruct us and tell us what's right and what's wrong. I didn't have this in my notes, but my mind just went there. I'm just thinking of the Babylon Bee um, article that... that popped up on Facebook regarding the Southern Baptist Convention. And they, they had a, it's irony, it's satire that they're, they produce. And it was uh, the Southern Baptist Convention is, you know, just wishes that God had written a book uh, telling them who could be ordained as pastors. And of course that's irony, he has, he did, and I'm thankful, I haven't really given an update on that, I'm getting sidetracked right now, but I'm thankful, went into the convention worried that there would be a a very close vote on whether we're going to stand upon the word of God regarding the ordination of of, uh, pastors in churches, and and who is qualified according to the word of God, and was pleasantly surprised that there was a very strong uh, conservative vote, uh, nearly 90% to say Uh, If you do not hold to what the Bible teaches regarding um, elders, bishops, overseers within the church, the qualifications they're given uh, in Titus and Timothy, that you're not a church in right fellowship with Southern Baptists. And so very, very thankful for that, um, that piece of leaving knowing goodness it ain't nearly as bad as one little group, wants to make it out to be. You've got a very vocal minority on the liberal like liberal side that's probably going to pull out. And then you've also got a, a bigger minority that just wants to harp and make things seem like it's worse than it really is, honestly, with the websites and the forums and Twitter and all that nonsense. And the reality is, the no, Southern Baptists, thank the Lord, uh, are a people who say, uh, we want to go with the Bible. We're going to stick with what the Scripture says, even when it's hard, even when it doesn't sit well with the culture that surrounds us. And so I am thankful to be able to share that news with you. Again, didn't plan on doing that here in this portion of this message, but that fits. It is not... Well, let's just go back to the main point there. God's people ought to be the ones who know justice and do justice. That Micah's first call against them is, you out of all people ought to know better, and yet you're, you're living in such a way that is not just. You, you ought to know better. We, as Christians, as believers, not just as a church, I applied it there generally as a church and even a convention of churches, uh, but we individually, privately need to apply that to our lives. Um, out of all the people at your job. They ought to look to you to see justice, to see goodness, to see true holiness. Not that you're working to earn your salvation, but you are one whom God saved. And you're one who's experienced His grace and forgiveness. And that makes a difference in a person's life. Uh, We ought to be the salt, the light of this earth. Notice, secondly, though we ought to know better, we often pervert justice. And we often justify our sins. We can so easily get off track and so easily enter into sin, to wickedness, to idolatry, to immorality, to just unkindness, to, to not, not following the, the love of God in, in our lives, and we can justify it. We, we like to take justice and use justice as a means of explaining our sin and why it's okay and why it's right even that we're doing what we're doing, even though it's wrong in the eyes of God's Word. The people of Israel were committing great injustices, and all the while what we'll see here is they were justifying it. They were pretending as if God were involved in it, and God were leading them in it, and God were even blessing them because of it. Let's look look to the description of their uh, injustices. Verses 2 and 3, he calls out the leaders of Israel. And he says to them, you hate good and love evil. Goodness, is that not a description of the culture that is around us right now? Hates good, things that historically even have been viewed within culture as good, are now viewed as hateful or hated and despised. And now all of a sudden things that have been wrong in the eyes even of a secular culture for so many years are being celebrated and elevated as right, hating good and loving evil. It was very much the same even in the nation, the people of God in Israel in this day and age. And then he goes in the end, or the, the second phrase there in verse 2, who strip the skin of my people and the flesh of their bones, who also eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from them, break their bones and chop them in pieces like meat for the pot, like flesh for the cauldron. Uh, that's, that's a description of a butcher shop. Have you ever skinned and cleaned a deer before? Many of you men in here have. Some of you ladies in here have. Or you maybe seen seen that done before. Uh, What is it? You skin it and you cut the meat off. And sometimes the bones are broken and meat there he's talking about for the pot. I like the way one pastor sort of paints an illustration of what what Micah is saying here. He he writes these words. He says, imagine being in downtown Jerusalem at 3 a.m. And this lone figure is his own person struggling along, and he lugs a a sledgehammer and a newly painted sign on on a chunk of a half-inch piece of plywood to which he's nailed two stakes. And he drags his cargo across the small lawn until he's right in front of the squat zone sign that identifies the building as the Hall of Justice. And so he's gone downtown Jerusalem, 3 a.m. in the morning, and he goes up to the Hall of Justice. He, he drags a sign up to the courthouse of Jerusalem. He positions his sign, he hammers the stakes in with his sledge, and he walks away. Five hours later, Judah's civil servants arrive for work, and they read, Jerusalem stockyards, best butchers in town, we slaughter, skin, slice, and serve. Uh, The imagery that Micah is giving here is that the courthouse had turned into a slaughterhouse. In, In the courthouse of Jerusalem, the judges and the rulers of the day were not determining cases in righteousness, with justice. They were all crooked. They were all wicked. They were all manipulative and out to only elevate their own power, only line their own pockets. Micah says, Justice has become like a slaughterhouse, like a butcher house in the land because of the iniquity, the wickedness of the rich and the powerful and the judges of the day. Verses 5 and 7, he turns his attention to the preachers, to the priests and to the prophets of the day. And he says of them that they were ones who catered to those who had Power in those who had money. Look look what he writes. He says, Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who make my people stray. They were telling falsehoods. They weren't speaking forth the word of God. Uh, What were they saying? They chant peace while they chew with their teeth. Now that expression, some of your translations, more modern translations even word it this way. They they chant peace to those who can feed them. Uh, The chattering of the teeth. Those that can put food on their table. Those that could line their pockets, they would they would give a prophecy of peace to anybody who could who could feed them, but prepare war against him who puts nothing in their mouths. And so their their prophecy, their teaching before the people was greatly dependent upon what they received in return. If you could pay well, peace be upon you, the blessing and prosperity of God. And if not. Warfare is coming. Prepare for war. God is going to judge you. Therefore, He says to those prophets, you shall have night without vision. God's not going to use you. God's not going to lead you in what you're doing. And you shall have darkness without divination. Darkness will come upon you, and there will be no guiding light from God. There will be no vision of God's guidance for the people. The sun shall go down on the prophets, and the day shall be dark for them. So the seers shall be ashamed, and the diviners abashed. Indeed, they shall all cover their lips, for there is no answer from God. God's not going to respond to their calls because of the the lies that they were spewing before the people. Go down to verse 11, the end of verse 11. We'll, we'll go to verses 9 and 10 in a moment. But at the end of verse 11, Micah, after describing just real succinctly an accusation accusations plural against them, he, he summarizes their heart attitude and all the wickedness that they were doing. Yet they lean, halfway there through verse 11, they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord among us? No harm can come upon us they weren 't convicted of by their sin, they justified their sin before God, they justified their wickedness and their cruelty and their lack of compassion for the weak and for the hurting and they were they were cruel in what they were doing without any remorse, without any conviction they justified it and even said, "Is not the Lord among us are Our benefit from our stealing and taking from those who are weak and needy, it's it's actually the blessing of God. God is with us in this, and no harm will ever come upon us, because God is on our side. We look at them and say, how foolish. But the truth is, we often can be just as foolish. It's amazing how quick we are to justify our sin. Things that are clearly wrong in our lives. But Satan blinds our eyes and sin hardens our heart. And, and I've counseled with people even before in deep sin sometimes. And they, they can't see how it's such an offense against God. They justify it. If you only knew what she had done or she had said. If, if you only knew, well, well, this makes me happy. And God wants me to be happy, doesn't He? And so it's okay if I you know, commit adultery and if I do this or do that. Because this is... People find all sorts of weird ways, and it's not logical according to God's word, but it's the twisted logic of a sinful mind. We justify our sin. We got a temptation all the time to do that, or we'd never sin if we viewed it rightly. But we sin because we justify it and think we'll be better for it and God's going to be all right with it. We can learn a lesson from their extreme example. We cannot justify sin. We must see the sinfulness of our sin and let that lead us to a godly sorrow that leads us to a true repentance. Notice thirdly, look to the example of Micah in verses 8 and 9. We need power from God to stand against such a culture of sin. Micah in the midst right after even describing the false prophets who were out only to speak what brought them profit. To speak Blessing to those who could line their pocket and put food on their table while speaking um, war against those who couldn't. He says there in verse eight, but truly I am full of power, not not by his own volition and his own determination and his own spirituality. What does he say? I'm full of power by the Spirit of the Lord. But Micah's confidence was not in himself. But Micah's boldness didn't come because of his ability didn't come because of his heritage. He doesn't cling to the things that we often cling to as a a means of emboldening us to step forward in strength. He says, no, I'm full of power by the Spirit of the Lord. That that his faith was in God and the power of God to accomplish what God has said. And therefore, he's going to stand upon what God has said. Therefore, he's going to speak forth. What God has said, no matter what it might bring to him, no matter what the rich and the powerful could have done to him, because he could have easily been beheaded, easily been put to death for speaking this message of judgment. But that didn't matter because he knew what God had said. He knew that God had called called him to this. And he therefore calls out the iniquity that God called him to call out and speaks that word of judgment that God has called him to speak before the people. And he says, Truly I am full of power by the Spirit of the Lord and of justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression, And to Israel, his sin. He had God on his side. And having God on his side, he says, true justice is on his side. That that what he's proclaiming is truly right because it's coming of God. And there's a might in it through the Spirit of God that no matter what they did to him, it did not matter. God could deliver him from it or God could deliver him through it. Either way, he determined... In the power of God, he would speak forth the word of God to the people who were in their sins and iniquities and hating him all the more for every word that he had to speak of it. Goodness, what an example for us today. We don't become a people who go with every fad of culture, with every celebration of sin and wickedness that's out there like so many do. Some just jump on it and try to justify it and say it's right, and then others take a less direct approach and they try to just avoid it. And we won't speak to those issues. We won't um, address them. We'll just speak good things and you know mention things that are, are, are loving and kind and avoid anything that's controversial or anything that might be labeled as sin and and you know be confrontational. Uh, either way is is sinful, is wrong, is not speaking forth what God has declared. Our our objective and, and commission from God even is to receive His Word and follow it and obey it. Live it out and, and, and speak it forth to others that they may come to see it as the truth that it is. And there is a boldness and there is a strength that comes from God in that. When we understand who God is, when we understand what true justice is, when we understand um, the beauty even of the inspired, infallible, inerrant, authoritative Word that He has given to us... That He's not left us in the dark to wonder and try to figure out so many things in life. Um, God's Word is sufficient. He's given us a lamp to guide and direct and instruct us in what we are to believe and in what we are to do and how we are to live. And therefore, our only uh, objective is to simply receive His Word and believe it and obey it and follow it and proclaim it. And that is what I am called to even as a preacher. Uh, No matter where the chips may fall, I pray that God would find me faithful. I pray God would find us faithful uh, to stand upon the truth of His Word and find in His Spirit, uh, through His Word, a strength to stand even when all others might fall. Verses 9 and 10, look at the just pointed summary of the sins of the people of Israel. It says, Now you hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who who abhor justice, they hate justice, they pervert all equity. And so any equity of every person, whether rich or poor, educated, uneducated, being created in the image of God as a loved soul whom uh, God has created, that's gone out the window. They pervert equity. And the rich and the powerful were oppressing the poor and the weak who build up Zion with bloodshed, murder even, in order to establish a greater city. And Jerusalem with iniquity, all sorts of sins and immoralities commonplace in the culture of that day. Her heads judged for a bribe. Uh, So the the ones that were leaders and rulers over cases, they they were receiving bribes left and right. They would determine the case not by justice, but by who, who could pay the most. Her priests teach for pay, all about the food on the table, the money in the pocket, her profits divine for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord among us? No harm shall come upon us. And he says, Therefore, he brings this word of judgment, because of you Zion shall be plowed like a field and Jerusalem shall become heaps of ruin and the mountains of the temple like the bare hills of the forest. God's going to come in and he's going to wipe it all out because of your hard-hearted sin against him. We need power from God to stand against such a culture of sin just as Micah did. And notice fourthly and lastly, and this kind of wrapping it all up, there are prayers that we may pray that God does not hear. There are prayers that we, and especially others that don't really know Him, others pray that God does not hear. You go down to the end of verse 7, the prophets, he says, for there is no answer from God. Oh, they cried out to him or will cry out to him in this hour of darkness. And Micah says God will not answer them. And more clearly in verse 4, speaking of the judgment that will come, then they will cry out to the Lord, but he will not hear them. He will even hide His face from them at that time. Why? Because they have been evil in their deeds. Hiding His face meaning He turns away from their cry. Now why, why would God turn away from their cry if He's the God who hears the cries of His people? If He's the God who's a God of loving kindness and grace and mercy, a God who delights and forgiveness and redemption and restoration, if all the character of God that's revealed in the, the just entirety of Scripture, and especially in those unique places where it's so clearly defined the heart of God for the sinner, why would that God ever turn a deaf ear to the cries of these people when the judgment comes upon them? I think the answer is quite clear in light of Second Corinthians chapter 7. Why? Because their cries were merely cries of being sorrowful over the consequences of sin. They really in these cries are never repenting over the wickedness of their actions. They never are going to come to a place where they realize what I did by prophesying falsehood is actually sin against God and is a, a great offense against Him and was for the, the, the you know, the people that were hurt because of the false prophecies that were given or the, the rulers of the day and age and, and the people that they literally um, starved to death, that they, they, they took all that they owned, even of the poor, and a, a case after case after case and gave it to the rich who really didn't need it just because the rich could line their pocket a little bit. They never would get to a place where they recognize the sinfulness of their sin. They merely would get to a place under the judgment of God where they're miserable. They're miserable because their city's collapsing, because the enemy's coming in, because the riches that they have based their life upon uh, accumulating has now been stripped away and so of course they're stressed out and they're they're sorrowful, they're grieving not over their sin before God but they're grieving over the loss of all the stuff that they've worshipped in the place of God. And so they even cry out to God and say, God save me, God deliver me and what does God say? I don't hear that cry. I'll even turn my face and hide it. Those who cry in such a way. Now, there is such a thing as a deathbed confession and salvation, when a person, at the very end of their life, maybe under the fear of death and the unknown, and the, you know they really might come to a place of godly sorrow. I believe that happens and that has happened, and they repent and say, "God, I, I know you're 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 holy, and I'm a sinner, and I need salvation. I need Jesus to." give me but i think that's the rare case of a deathbed prayer the foxhole prayer i do believe based upon the scripture so often a person might call out to god in a situation of impending death and the fear and suffering of that moment and god doesn't answer and god turns a deaf ear towards them why because they're, they're not sorrowful over their sin. They're not repentant over their sin. And they're not seeking from God in confession and repentance, looking for forgiveness. They're actually just crying out to God to say, I'm, I'm, I hate that this has come upon me. I really want to just keep living and doing the things that I've done all along against you and against your word. I just don't want to be here in this situation right now. Get me from this sometimes God in His grace has delivered a person in that moment and they only continue in the sins that they've never repented of. They've had a worldly sorrow and not a godly sorrow. And so as we close and we we think of Israel's example and we think of even the prayers of our even of our own prayers and we're running out of time but, but you realize I'll just mention it real quickly. Our prayers can be hindered as we pray before God because of sin in our life. That we've committed against others can affect God hearing our prayers. The New Testament says, First uh, Peter three seven says that our prayers can be hindered because of the way we treat our our wives, men, uh, and that's just to, you can take that and apply it even to any relationship in life. But even men and their wives and mistreating it there it says treat your wife. Basically, my word, words would be treat your wife right because your prayers will be hindered if you don't. Prayers can be hindered for not speaking the truth about God, for speaking lies about God, as those prophets were doing. Prayers can be hindered because your heart is seeking selfish gain. Um, James even writes, "You ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures." Um, we we kind of draw this automatic assumption: we pray, God must hear and God must answer. And there is a right call to examination tonight in light of Isaiah, or rather, Micah chapter three in light of the example of Israel to say, am I living in such a way where I am doing justice? I am loving mercy and living rightly before God. And am I praying in such a way where I know He hears me because I'm asking in His will and I'm asking with a heart that that has repented and believed upon Him as Lord and Savior. I beg you, if you're here tonight and you don't know that for sure, Maybe God's convicting you with a godly sorrow over your sin and not just a worldly sorrow over the consequences of your sin. Get that settled tonight before the Lord. If you need to talk to somebody, come forward. would love to talk with you about that in this invitation or just there in your pew. Uh, pray before the Lord and get that settled before Him this evening. Let's go to Him in prayer. And uh, Paul's going to come, I believe, and just lead us in an invitation. Heavenly Father, we come to You, Lord. We thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the truth that is spoken by it and through it and the conviction that it can bring upon our hearts. Lord, through Your Word, through Your Spirit, You do show us our sin and show us our need for You. And maybe tonight there's some that that's happening to even now, and they know in their heart there is a, a seed of godly sorrow over their sin before You. May they not repress that, but may they take that and let it lead them to repentance, confession. Lord, may they let that lead them to Christ, to faith in Him, to dependence upon Him, and even leave Him here tonight knowing that they're right with You because of Your grace and forgiveness. May they not leave here hardened in their sin and just sorry over the consequences of their sin. Lord, work, I pray, draw us unto Christ afresh and anew. I ask it in Jesus' name.